Stop the Press demo. Two for one tickets to the Wellness Summit are open. After not one, not two, but three salad events, Marcus, the Wellness Summit returns to Melbourne in 2016 for two days of powerhouse wellness with your favourite wellness couch host and Australia's wellness elite. Join us at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre on September 10 and 11 for an inspirational, educational, fun, exciting, sensational cocktail of wellness that promises to help you take your life to the next level. Now, two-for-one tickets to the summit are extremely limited and won't be available for long, so make sure you go to www.thewellnesssummit.com right now and get in whilst you can. This will be the biggest summit on record, folks. You'll see a 1,000 people there. You do not want to miss this one. Pop the date to the diary and see you there. Thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. You're listening to A Quirky Journey, the healthy family podcast with your hosts, Joe Witten and Fuad Kassab. Welcome to A Quirky Journey. Join us as we share our family's journeys to good health. You'll find plenty of inspiration, tips and recipe ideas, as well as stories from everyday people who've struggled and overcome health problems and diet challenges in their own families. Today, I have with me Fuad. Hi, Fuad. Hi, Joe. And we have Dr. Igor again. So um, thank you for coming again, Igor. Hello again. How are you? Hi, Dr. Well, T. Hi. Hi. We're pretty excited well, because we had such a great time last time you came and chatted with us and we had so much feedback from people saying um, that that was very helpful and they want to know more. So we thought we'd get you back and ask you lots of questions about food allergies and reactions to food because this is a much more complicated subject than it seems and I think you have a lot to share with us on this. So yeah. maybe we can just hand it over to you and you can talk. <laughs> we'll ask you questions. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, just to start off, I think with uh, our context, like what, we, what we're looking at here and a lot of the people that follow uh, Jo on her Facebook page and her website, they, uh, they come from a background of food allergies. Yeah. And a lot of people try to find this like silver bullet, Dr. T, where they go, oh, this is the reason for my allergies. This is like uh, people have messed around with food and it's all GMO or some people say like antibiotics and some people say it's this or that and everyone starts going no of course studies show that this has a contributing factor everyone's really confused and lost and they don't know what to trust and everyone really tries to pin down the the source of their disease to one thing so um is there one cause or do we have many causes and what's the most prevalent or relevant to us well i think the, the broader case of reactions to food i'm going to outline Okay. how broad that actually is because it isn't all allergy and sometimes the we have to speak the same language even though we're trying to get the same message across what what we're actually talking about so i'm going to try to give you a broad range of of how we react to food um not just the additives that have been um put in there as a result of you know flavor enhancing and preservatives and things like that mm-hmm. Just naturally cooking some food creates issues with it. Um, So I guess I'll sort of start with some examples. So in last year, there was a case of um, a mother and daughter who died in Bali Mm. from anaphylactic shock from eating fish in Bali. And it was actually quite a common disorder 
um, even though ABC never mentioned the technical name for it, but it's actually called Scombroid, S-C-O-M-B-R-O-I-D. Mm-hmm. And it's to do with, we'll come back to it, but basically what they, they love fish. They were from Sunshine Coast. They went up to Bali. They had lots of their favourite fish and perhaps some fish that might have been um, out too long. You know, the climate there, things can go off so more quickly. Hot, yeah. and, and it's a, it's actually a global issue. The, the WHO actually keep an eye on the level of histamine in the fish. Mm. So it's not added to it. It's not an ingredient that's um, uh, added to food as such. But food, some foods are naturally higher in, in amines. Mm. Uh, you probably might have come across that word if you yeah. looked at the RPA and Swain's work. Yeah. Um, that some foods are higher in amines. And the thing about these amines is that some people are better at handling them than others. Mm-hmm. And why these people died was that they both had asthma mm-hmm. and they were on chronic antihistamines. So I'll, I'll sort of, well, I'll, I'll keep going with that one because it's an important thing to know that that wasn't anybody's fault as such, mm-hmm. even though globally we know that some fish in particular have higher levels of histamine or amines. But it's also a characteristic of food that's been um, left out for a long time or, or um, leftovers that have been reheated the next day. Mm. And I think in some ways the refrigerator and the freezer were a retrograde step because they've encouraged us to eat that kind of food and, and perhaps make more food than we should be eating at the time. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, now for some people histamine doesn't seem to bother them and there seems to be two categories of people. You are either um, histadelic, which is you um, have um, high histamine levels, or histopenic, low histamine levels. And because histamine has so many functions in the body, I'll, I'll give you some examples. Histamine is important for the sleep-wake cycle because it promotes wakefulness. It, it, it's important for controlling the body temperature, mm-hmm. um, appetite, um, cognition, um, the the state of the blood vessels um you know, in the lung, in the, in the peripheral part of the body. Um, it's involved in uh, gastric secretions. You know, there's a whole range of things that histamine does. So it's supposed to be there. And normally it's the liver that controls the circulating histamine. It's kind of the, the monitor, the school monitor mm-hmm. that's controlling histamine. Some people are very good at, at keeping histamine levels down and some people are not. So if your diet is high in histamines and you happen to be unlucky that your liver is not very good at dealing with histamines or amines and then you get a challenge like that with a whacking dose of histamine and you happen to have atopic asthma which is the histamine based type asthma then you're the one that's going to go on to a really severe reaction and in fact in peanut allergy i believe that most of the deaths that that are related to peanut allergy were always in asthmatic people wow it's very unlikely to die from peanut anaphylaxis if you don't actually have asthma pre-existing. Hmm. So often these reactions are, are something has happened historically or something you've been perhaps set up for a particular reaction given perhaps genetics and then there's something else that happens. There's never just one thing that, uh, in terms of the, these, these histamine reactions. Having said that, um, five people per year die from eating you know, the blowfish, the pufferfish, Wow. Um, fugu in Japan, mm. and that's because it contains a toxin that no one is immune to. It just paralyzes your nerves and you die. Um, and in Japan, they eat that fish 
regularly that you have to do a course that lasts for three years to show you're proficient at, at, at fill, um, filleting it and removing the, to the toxic parts of it. And even then they still have accidents where people will die. That's just crazy. And, <laughs> I know. It's just I, you just think, well, what's, what a gamble. what's so why is it, so, is it so yummy? I mean, they eat the ovaries mm. and all sorts of things there, really? but um, – so, I, I, I looked into that for a while. It was, uh, from what I understand, they were eating the, the organs. Like if you eat the flesh, that's usually okay. But yeah. the, uh, the thing that uh, most people really, really crave and love is having a bit of that flesh with the liver because apparently texturally it's just quite sublime. And a lot yeah. of people will overeat. Like if, they'll have, if they have a bit more than their body can handle, the toxicity that's in the liver just sends them over the edge. That's from what I've read. But, uh, yeah, and the, the, the meat itself so isn't really what, worth eating. Yeah, That's what certain things about food, if you think about this, let's say a, a tribe goes into a new jungle and they start eating things at random. Mm. Eventually they're going to find out the hard way that some of those things are toxic. Yeah. yeah. Perhaps the taste buds of some of those people will save them and give them a survival advantage because they can, they can either have a higher tolerance for certain toxins, um, you know, like for mushrooms or, or, or um, other types of toxins we find in plants, um, or they'll be able to taste the toxin and avoid it. Mm. The ones that don't obviously won't reprocreate, and that will be the end of their genetic line. Yeah. So the taste and reactions actually has some survival advantage, believe it or not. Mm. I'll give you an example. You will like this. Um, ten humans, ten cats, and ten dogs, and ten rats uh, managed to get themselves into the Willy Wonka chocolate factory. <laughs> okay. And they all pig out, and the, only the humans survive. Yep. And that's because those animals don't have the um, liver enzymes to deal with the theobromine that yeah. is in naturally in chocolate. So that's not added to chocolate. Mm. Willy Wonka would never add additives to his chocolate. <laughs> um, it's just that there's a certain tolerance for these things that occur naturally. Um, and the other thing, another interesting example is um, kidney beans. I don't know if you realize this, but five raw kidney beans is actually a fatal dose. Wow. Yeah. What? It's because, yeah. It's, it's a compound in the kidney beans that makes your blood clot. Um, it's called... They're called hemagglutination units. Wow. And if you don't soak them and boil them, you have more of these toxins. And it's considered, yeah, four or five raw kidney beans will initiate nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and abdominal pain. It could actually be fatal in some people. Wow. So that's, that's just a natural effect of the food, and everyone has a tolerance for that. The other one is, um, you know, how potatoes turn green. Yeah. Well... That's due to a compound. It's actually due to chlorophyll being made in the potato, which is saying, can you get me into the sunlight because I really want to sprout? Yeah. But they have a compound in there called solanine, and mm. 225 to 450 milligrams of um, potatoes that have, um, have this green colour is actually fatal. That's about a kilogram. So if you eat a, eat a kilogram of, of potatoes that have gone green, um, that you could be looking at a fatal reaction wow. for that. Even, so even if it's cooked? Well, the thing is if you, if you peel the potato skin off, it's okay. It's right. the problem in the skin. But where, that's where all the vitamin C is, by the way. Yeah. But, um, so 
you can and so maybe the lesson to that is um, moderation yeah. that you wouldn't no one would like, two raw kidney beans yeah, instead of five. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to chew on kidney beans so there's a social aspect to that that these things uh, um, if they're shared the, the tox, they don't, you don't get the toxic reactions hmm. so you see those food reactions that's nothing that, that they're not to do with anything to do related to the GMO or how they're prepared yeah. or um, Would you call that an allergy? No, they're not, and that, that's that's the thing. Sometimes when people get confused, that they they don't. We tend to use allergy and intolerance in the same breath, and they're not necessarily the same thing. For most of these foods, I think everybody's intolerant. Salicylates are a very good group, a good example of this. Because mm. if you took a chili, for instance, which is loaded with salicylates. Admittedly, there's capsaicin, rosemarinic acid, and a few other things in there as well. But if you got 100 people randomly and said, how much red chili could you eat? <laughs> some people couldn't have any. Some people could have a tip, some a quarter, a half, two, three, four, five. There's a, a, a spectrum of intolerance of it. Mm. Same with alcohol. Every Everything that, that we that's produced um, has a certain tolerance to it. The I don't want to jump ahead of myself here. Well. You might be getting there, but what, what about gluten? Does that go on a spectrum as well? Because, or is celiac the only way that you'd be intolerant to gluten? Well, technically, celiac... See, sometimes we, we're trying to use older terminology for something yeah. that's, that's new. So the celiac was a clinical diagnosis. It was about 1 in 10,000 people. Um, you know, they were underweight, had terrible diarrhea if they ever had any type of gluten and they had that from birth and mm. there are genes for, for this disorder but about maybe one in ten people have reactions to gluten which is not celiac but they may have the same type of antibodies so we're using that test in a different way it's the same with um, the anti-nuclear antibodies the, they were invented for, this, for diagnosing a condition called systemic lupus erythematosus. Mm. But many people have the same antibodies and don't have that disorder. Mm. So we're, this is, medicine has to kind of re, recalculate, re-pigeonhole some of these things so that we can understand them better. But coming back to your question about gluten, gluten, because it's uh, for agglutinating is deliberately sticky and it's a really hard thing to digest. Um, yes. You need lots of stomach acid to start the denaturing of it. Mm. You need um, lots of intestinal enzymes um, to denature it. Everything's got to be working absolutely hunky-dory. And for most people, that doesn't cause the problem. I suppose that gluten gets digested, um, causes a little bit of leaky gut but by the time the gluten fragments have got to that part of the intestine that's leaky there's nothing to set off an immune reaction mm -hmm. because they're perfectly neutral like if you took gluten apart about 60% glutamine amino acid uh, and a few other amino acids and they're all in their inert safe form but it's it's actually an aspect of digestion that most people don't realize that if you, let's say you blended up your, your dinner in the thermi, you know, at 14,000 RPM for, you know, a couple of hours, and then you put that into a syringe and injected it into a vein, you'd be dead before you put a mill in mm. because of the, you'd have an anaphylactic reaction because none of that food is supposed to bypass the intestine. 
Neither. Which brings me to my next point, which is a condition where people, after being bitten by a tick, will cannot eat meat anymore, yeah. can't eat um, beef, pork, mm. and it's called the Lone Star Tick. And uh, discovered in 2007, these people who have been bitten by this tick for, forevermore could not eat meat, mm -hmm. um, red meat. Same. And it wasn't anything that had been done to the meat. It was the fact that normally the proteins and constituents of proteins in animals, we are, we're hidden from them. They're destroyed either by the stomach acid, which is why the pH is too and so erosive, or the intestine has destroyed them or the, our bugs in the intestine have destroyed those toxins or they haven't got past the intestinal border or the liver has caught them and they've never, ever got into systemic circulation. So there are several wicked keepers that stop these things from getting through. So very few times does, does something from food ever get directly into the bloodstream. Mm. But the tick injects this compound called alpha-gal, which is found in those species of, of animals. So it's a direct, um, I suppose, vaccination against those particular compounds, which would never get into the bloodstream. And so forevermore, um, those people can't eat um, red meat. They can eat chicken and turkey. These so, sorry, so let, let me get this straight. So the tick actually puts that compound in your bloodstream, then your, then your immune system reacts to that and mounts an attack. And then whenever you eat yep. red meat, it starts going through that kind of Im immune exactly. response. Because it's, exactly right. It's like it's been, you're being, you're pre-sensitized. Wow. See, normally those compounds don't go don't get into the bloodstream. Now, this is where this, where gluten and a whole lot of these other issues come into um, effect because normally the fragments, a couple of amino acid fragments together, um, they shouldn't get into the systemic circulation at all to cause a reaction, mm. you see. And those reactions are not allergy-mediated. They're mediated through the same mechanism as you would if you had a virus. And that's where the terminology needs to be standardized. When doctors talk about allergies, they're talking about IgE, immunoglobin E, which is mostly a histamine-based reaction. Yes. So there's a trigger, and then these lymphocytes release masses of histamine, which then basically um, causes a, a severe asthma attack and drops your blood pressure to zero. So, so that that is a uh, an allergic response as opposed mm, to immune, allergy. immune response. Yeah. Okay, right. And those tests are mediated. Most immunologists check those through IgE. Yeah. But the reactions to gluten and the and the tick bite and a whole lot of other foods are mediated through a completely different part of the immune system. It's IgG, immunoglobin G, hmm. and and they aren't allergies. Okay. You see, but they're the just as dangerous. <laughs> Are, are they immune, they're immune responses. So that's, is that what exactly. we're saying? And there's a whole oh. spectrum of them. And I guess it depends on the circumstances. So w that's where you get this cross reactivity. Seems so this like is what, like have... a white blood cells get, uh, get made in, and start attacking the, is that what's happening? There's an inflammatory response. Is that what? There's, what? there's, there's lymphocytes, lymphocytes okay. that are charged with, um, storing, the face of the enemy, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and so anything that looks a little bit odd, mm. if it's seen it before, there's a certain reaction. It's the IgG. If it hasn't seen it before, it's called IgM. It's kind of like a, a tank. You know, it's it mobilized quickly, but it's not that maneuverable. 
Yeah. And so you get these different phases. Like, say you have a, a virus and I say, oh, you've got glandular fever at the moment. That's because your immunoglobin M for that virus has been detected. And then when the body finds a more efficient way to do it, instead of driving tanks through the bloodstream, they've just got these handguns, which is IgG, later the IgG rises. And then they'll say, oh, you had glandular fever before sometime. We can't tell exactly when. Hmm. And it's, you can get IgG reactions to any food. There are companies like HealthScope that do um, an IG3-panel IgG um, food reactions from blood tests, which is completely different to what immunologists do when they check for allergies. Okay. And they're not quite the same thing. They come under food reactions and they're food triggers, but they are diff mediated differently. Now, the importance of this is that if we remove our last podcast, some people's immune systems overdo these immune reactions. Right. Instead of the dial going to two or three for a couple of days, they'll keep it on 10 for months. Yeah. And it's these people that seem to have more issues with the food reactions if they're mediated through this IgG thing. So the leaky gut is very, very relevant. Gut health here mm. predisposes them to reacting to foods, even things that you wouldn't expect. But there have to be a lot of defense systems down before that happens. Like the salicylates are a good example. Mm -hmm. They should be destroyed in the, in the, in the gut, in, in, in the stomach actually. Mm. The same as the pesticides and the flavor enhancers and the preservatives and the colorings and the flavors. When they were licensed, humans didn't have issue with digestion like we have now. Oh. Very, very different kettle of fish. Yeah. And the question we should be asking is why are we reacting to these now and not originally when they came and it's because our gut health is worse. Yeah. So people, you, people point to those things as the source of our disrupted gut health. Are you saying that, no, these are just no. not symptomatic because our gut health has deteriorated from other reasons? No, the reactions to them are a consequence of poor gut health. Okay, and where did the gut, gut health, health come from? So, yeah. It's, there's a, a few reasons. One is that if you follow zinc levels, in the community, if you look at things like the reference ranges for zinc, which are supposed to be in um, people who've been counseled to make sure they don't have any specific illnesses, um, you find that the zinc levels have fallen in the normal range quite substantially over the last 10, 12 years. Right. Um, same with selenium, chromium, all those trace elements. Now, the problem with zinc is that once it gets below a certain point, you can't make enough stomach acid. And if you don't have that stomach acid, you will not be able to destroy the colorings, flavors, flavors enhancers, and preservatives when they hit the stomach. Mm. Your defense to them will is gone. So you're going to see more reactions to them. And then in the group of patients who have overactive immune systems, the combination of their gut deteriorating gut health, which then turns all their immune system into overdrive, mm. plus their their lack of protective mechanisms from these compounds is why you're seeing a rise in reactions to foods and all those colorings and things like that. It's a combination of things. So why do you think the gut health, like why is the zinc low? Is it the soil depletion or what is it? Yeah. It's a few reasons. It's a, the total amount of zinc in a person is determined by the amount coming in minus the amount going out. Mm -hmm. So the losses of zinc, 85%, is through the intestine. 
So if you've got intestinal um, issues, you will lose more zinc than you can put in. And once it gets below a certain point, you won't be able to catch up. See, normally if a nutrient falls, there's a whole range of of catch-up reactions, endocrinological glands and and the nervous system and say, look, eat more of these foods. Like that's why we get cravings. Mm. Go through and they go, oh, I feel like armors today. I don't know why. Why do I feel like armors today? You know, and it's your body taking over. It's the autonomic nervous system um, saying, right, well, we're low in magnesium and and zinc, so I think you should eat more of these things. And mm-hmm. so you, instinctively, animals do this. They will seek out what they need, and we're yeah. animals. And most of the time we follow our intuition until our parents beat it out of us, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so so as the zinc falls, we would naturally go, go to foods that have higher amounts of zinc. But um, the, there's a limit to how much zinc is in, in our food naturally, and it hasn't improved. There's no way it's improved. Mm. So that's why levels of zinc are generally falling, and that's why we're starting to get more issues with digestion. I'll give you an example. Um, I was, uh, let's say you, you're eating something. Let's say it's a combination, or let's just say it's breast milk. Mm-hmm. Normally what would happen is that um, when it gets to the stomach, the, the stomach um, drops the pH to 2 and starts digesting the proteins um, that are the larger ones. And then as when it's the stomach empties and pushes the food to the next sort of um, area, the duodenum, then there's a, there would have been a message from the stomach to the rest of the, the endocrine gland saying, oh, how much protein, how much sugar, how much fat is in this meal, how much um, uh, pancreatic secretion should we make, what should the pH of that pancreatic secretion is, how alkaline would it need to be to, to neutralise how much acid we put in, all of these things. Um, and then the next step is the, the proteins that have been mostly um, denatured from larger fragments to smaller ones, the intestine has, you know, eight and a half metres and lots of time to just pick at it until it's all nicely digested by the time it gets absorbed further down. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole range of things that happen. A lot of them are, are um, uh, require zinc to make them. For instance, if you don't make enough stomach acid, this might delay the emptying of the stomach to the next phase, you see. Or, and if that happens, then what will hap- what may happen is that the, the milk will start to ferment, mm-hmm. which means that there will be pressure in the, in the gut and it might go up the wrong way. Ah. Like so you get a re- reflux. Mm. Now, if you look at the prescribing of drugs for reflux, oh my God. they used to be in adults only and then young adults, and then teens, and now we're prescribing them in, in infants. Yeah. Yeah, now, those pro- proton pump inhibitors. Yeah. And it's because if the mother's low in zinc, the baby's going to be low in zinc, mm-hmm. and then you're going to get more of this um, d- digestive issues and peristalsis wow. issues, you see. Yeah. So can you take zinc to improve it usually? Yeah, normally we give it to the mums. Okay. You check in the mums. It's quite interesting because... My patients are very, uh, not guinea pigs, but they're very, uh, they're, they want, to, they want to, to do things for the bigger picture. Yeah. So we're altruistic. So, because normally we measure things like iron and pregnancy, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it's very interesting to follow zinc during pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And I'm not the only one who's done this. There are studies to show that, that we should pay just as much attention to zinc 
as we do to calcium and folate right. and iron pregnancy mm. because all the ones that I've checked, all the zinc levels are abysmally low by the time they deliver. Wow. wow. Now, the implication of that, importance about zinc is you need it to make serotonin. You need a really good level of yeah. zinc to make serotonin your happy chemical. Yep. And the thing about zinc is that there's a certain amount in the bloodstream. You've got five or six litres of blood and there's, you know, there's some there, but you store some zinc at short call in muscle. So um, at day three when the letdown comes in for a mother, all the zinc goes into the breast milk because the zinc is needed for secretions, all the secretions. Mm. And, and breast milk has a significant amount of zinc um, in it for, for the baby's digestion, for their immune system, uh, for growth, all these things. But it drops in the bloodstream. So what you'll find then is there will be some tissues, therefore, that don't have enough zinc, and one of them is the brain. Hmm. And that's been one of the explanations for the three-day blues postpartum. Ah. That makes sense? Yeah, it does. If you had lots and lots of zinc to spare, like you had good muscle mass, you had because it's the muscle that's mostly the short-term call for zinc. When you have an infection, it comes out of muscle. That's why okay. the studies show that exercise and muscle mass improve immunity. Huh. So, Dr. T, just uh, to, to go on the zinc idea uh, for our listeners, uh, it's not just zinc that we're talking about here that can have these kinds of symptoms or cause pro problems like this. So you, are you just giving zinc as an example? The zinc is the commonest and the best the, example. Okay, right, okay. But there could Coming be other... This, yeah, that the levels have fallen. Yeah. Even the TGA, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, realize this because for they're the ones who control how much of these things you can buy over the counter. Mm -hmm. And for years and years and years, it was 25 milligrams or that sort of amount that you could buy over the counter. And recently they changed it to 50. Oh. Now, why would they do that if they weren't aware that perhaps the general population levels have fallen since mm -hmm. the TGA was formed in 1999? Yeah. You see? So we see it clinically, and so so we're seeing all these, uh, yeah, like it, I mean, correlation. I mean, obviously, is quite clear that there's way more food intolerances and allergies and uh, yeah. all these problems, and the, these levels have dropped. So this does sort of fall in place with the research that you were talking about. Yeah, so, and and perhaps we're noticing. The, the greater intensity of these reactions. Yeah. Like we've all eaten something and thought, oh, I wish I hadn't eaten that. I remember when I lived in Hong Kong, um, seafood was in abundance there. And, you know, when somebody takes you out to dinner, it's kind of rude not to finish the whole thing if you buy a few kilograms of that, of seafood. <laughs> and I remember once eating more crab than I've ever eaten before. And the next day I had this very fine rash on me and I thought, ah. Oh, that's really interesting. I've eaten crab before, but I never ate this amount. Mm. Yeah, and it was it was it exceeded some threshold in me. Mm. I bet it was delicious, though. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I was inspired to learn how to cook that Singapore chili crab. Yeah, it is delicious. So, so then you've got so you've got these triggers, um, and then it's the extent of the reactions that people are noticing. Um, and this is where, like, the dysbiosis, the gut bacteria imbalance can make a huge difference to whether somebody just has a bit of a gut ache or they're, they're sick for weeks or, or months mm. after eating something they shouldn't have eaten. Um, and we know that, you know, there's various reasons why the gut bacteria might not be optimal, might, the person might be a C-section 
baby, they may have had antibiotics early on in life. Um, they may be, maybe we're talking about the effect of um, herbicides in the um, destruction um, of um, the poisoning the mitochondria of these bacteria. Um, then you've got um, the processing of foods that generally lead to lower fibre intake or lead to dysbiosis. Um, there's a whole range of reasons why someone would then have dysbiosis. And then if they're challenged, they they react more intensely, even if it's mm. eczema, for instance. And it's interesting, one of my patients came back with eczema that had been completely healed and said, oh, my doctor put me on this product called Eczema Shield because he said the inflammation in the skin is somewhat dependent on the gut bacteria. Yay. <laughs> and, of course, that you, the TJ had to be convinced of that, otherwise they wouldn't have been able to call it that. Mm. Which brings me to another point that, you know, legally only doctors are allowed to call patients patients. Oh. And legally no one is allowed to say that they cured anybody. Mm. The doctor says they cured somebody, they're liable to be reported by someone. Wow. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it is interesting. It is interesting. So, yeah, you have to be quite careful about how you speak so about it. What are you allowed it? to say? That you managed their disease? Is it like, what, what are you, you saying? managed, yes. Very good. Oh, <laughs> very good spin on that one for us. Oh, my God. We managed it so that it wasn't a problem ever again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, I've got, I've got a, a, a question. Maybe I'll, I'll get a freebie off you while, while we're here. Maybe as well. <laughs> have um, yeah. So uh, I'll just give you a bit of background about myself very quickly and, and uh, flesh out a few ideas that I've had, um, you know, since we last spoke and also uh, basically uh, from the conversation that we're having now. But I, I grew up with a lot of infections in my early childhood. I had a lot of ear infections and then um, I got a lot of skin infections. I got staphylococcus uh, basically in, in my head, on, on, like at the base of my hair fo follicles. And then that spread out throughout my whole body. And then later on, I got uh, eczema everywhere. And I would uh, scratch until I bled all the time. And I saw so many allergy specialists and everyone would put me on antibiotics and steroid mm. creams. And um, then when I turned 30, I went on a gluten-free paleo diet and um, all these things got better. And I'm wondering, is it the nutritional density of the paleo diet that I've restored? For instance, I started eating these foods that are richer in zinc, like oysters and things like that. Um, or is it the fact that I've cut out the gluten or is it both? And, uh, and what would you call what I, what I had when I ate gluten? When I eat gluten now, I will get um, like uh, itchy again. I'll get eczema and some acne will come back when I eat it now. Would you call that an immune response or is it gluten? I don't even know. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Mm. Yeah. Um, the, uh, it sounds like with the, once the process starts, I, I think you're probably low in zinc when you're a child. Okay. And so the, the run of infections are very typical of children who have had low zinc, they either get um, gastros or otitis media, those ear infections. Yeah. Um, and there's that actually University of Queensland did a study a few years ago where they gave these two to six-year-olds 15 milligrams of zinc, which is like the adult dose, and they dropped their presentations of ear infections in gastro and bronchitis to virtually nothing. Wow. That's been repeated all over the world. Wow. So it's more likely to get infections. So as soon as that starts, the natural tendency 
is to give an antibiotic for the infection. Mm. Which oh, then the Lebanese creates, are antibiotic trigger happy, you know, like we, this, yeah. we yeah, they'll just give you antibiotics. And like then the dysbiosis begins and probably at those through times you would have had fever. So you would have got either paracetamol, aspirin or ibuprofen. Oh, uh, all the time. Yeah, all the time. Uh, that's, which, yeah. which kills off the, the E. coli, which is the major aerobic bacteria in the intestine. So the combination of, of antipyretics, antibiotics set up a more serious reaction. And then when gluten comes along, uh, as you know, everyone gets some leaky gut from the gluten. But um, if you have gluten more than once a day, you don't get a chance to repair it. So hmm. you get a <laughs> chronic leaky gut. The issue. Lebanese invented bread, you know, they call it Lebanese bread. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> they think they invented bread. <laughs> I know. But like, the, fun, the funny thing is, like, you know, we, like, my mom would make me a, like, a Lebanese roll and she would put, like, rice with noodles in it, you know. So, like, okay. you know, even that would be had with bread. We had it with wow. everything. Wow. Yeah, my salad. mother's Lebanese, so I know exactly what you're talking oh, there about. You go. <laughs> yeah. And so they have your um, your Lebanese bread of zata. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. that's that's good stuff. I love it. As a for fillings, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know the life. Yeah. So the gluten aspect of it then starts to perpetuate the problem. You you perpetuate the malabsorption, so you can't absorb the things you need to heal the the eczema you know, things like proline and glycine, these things for the skin. Yeah. Um, you, your immune system goes into high alert, so anything remotely like gluten sets it off, and that's that's because it's just a survival advantage to identify your threat as early as possible. Yeah. Um, so with the paleo diet, what you, what you have is a much higher fiber intake, and fiber yeah. is the things that they found that promotes a good bacteria. Yeah. Um, you have much lower grain intake, so your exposure to uh, these pro-inflammatory foods is much lower. So your intestine actually has a chance to heal itself. Yeah, um, I mean, like for, for the listeners who think paleo is all about meat, I, I'll probably eat, say, uh, 20% of meat, and the rest was vegetables and nuts mm. and things like that. So, but Do you think you increased your fiber intake when you look yeah, back? 100%, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. There was an yeah. interesting program... It was on Catalyst last year about this, about the in, uh, intestinal health. I think it was August mm, 15 I or something. Yeah. And they were looking at, there was a one particular guy, I think he's a sportsman, and he had like early borderline diabetes, yes. young guy. Yeah. And they analysed his diet and realised that he was on the worst kind of diet for this you know, diabetes, which is an interleukin-6, one of those autoimmune-type um, uh, cytokine systems, um, and it was being, uh, well, you could tell that it was dysbiosis that was fueling it because we know that those people, when you put the wrong gut bacteria in, they're going to get more inflammation. They're going to manifest it yeah. somehow. So he followed the dietitian's diet, which is basically to, to reduce all the, the, the processed foods as much as possible, which is, you know, low fiber, high density carbs, that kind of thing, increase. Mm. The, the fiber, basically like a paleo, mm -hmm. um, and he reversed all his abnormalities in six to eight weeks. Do you remember that? Yeah. And he said, Amazing. I don't care. I, I hate this diet, but I'm not going to get diabetes, so I'm going to stay on it. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, it's very interesting. So the gut health can be influenced by so many things, and we're just starting to, to, to work this out. I mean, even 
things like chlorine in our tap water. Yeah. Chlorine we use to, um, you know, as an antiseptic, mm. you use it to clean aircon filters and all these kind of things. <laughs> and so hypochlorite is bleach and, um, you know, so we're putting chlorine in, in if is that affecting our gut bacteria when we're drinking tap water with chlorine in it? Mm. It's there to kill off the bugs, uh, Cryptosporidium and Giardia. Well, I mean, that, that is a good question. Is it? Well, there are some people say that it does. I mean, it has to because if, it, if chlorine can kill Cryptosporidium, and that's not, a, um, that's not a bug that goes down easily, and same with Giardia, that one mm. isn't one that goes down easily. And the thing about water quality is... <clears throat> You know, a few years ago when Sydney had that issue with those two bugs, um, the the way the media reported it was quite interesting because it wasn't that the chlorination eradicated them, it just kept the numbers below a certain threshold level. Hmm. It, so, so obviously the chlorine doesn't kill them off, it just sort of numbs them or, or, or reduces their numbers. So, yeah, chlorine kills off bacteria and parasites and, and things. So Even in the that, concentrations that we have, like with like if it's, say, two, like I don't know what, do they add it into our water supply or is it just yeah. there? They do no, add it's, it's, it. I thought they added fluoride. It's the formula for it when it goes okay. through. Yeah. But the we point have, is it, it must be enough to kill bacteria, otherwise mm. we'd all be dying from Giardia yes. and Cryptosporidium. Okay. And don't, don't they also say when you're having a hot shower with the chlorine in the water, your pores are opening up to the warmth and then, you know, you're getting more of that chlorine than if yeah. you're drinking. Yeah. Well, there's even worse aspect to that because chlorine reacts when it's heated and, and yeah. creates compounds called tetrahalomethanes, which are all carcinogenic. Mm. The person who wrote the best about this was actually, um, I can't remember his name now, uh, about the Sydney water thing. He lives in the, near the Hawkesbury River. Gee, John Archer. So hold John on, our showers are cancerous now? <laughs> well, Mine's not because uh, I have a chlorine filter on the whole house. The <laughs> thing is to not have, yeah, I do too. I have chlorine. Yeah. Is, um, you know, don't sit there under a really hot shower and then inhale mm. all the vapor. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, do your four-minute moderately warm shower and get out quickly. I do um, cold showers myself. But, there you um, go. You're yeah. right then. <laughs> well, let's not go there, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. Moving let's on. They don't have, they have hot water. Yeah. I mean, my family uses... Yeah, you're probably fine if you have... Well, you know, yeah. there's a condition called heat-mediated urticaria yes. where heat sets off... Um, histamine in the in the skin mm. and and funnily enough there's actually cold water media to carry as well so you can't win yeah if cold water you get it if you hot water mm. you get it I, you know, I some certainly people... get it with hot water for sure like that's that's no yeah. doubt cold water is fine like I, I don't get like i think maybe some people would get it with cold but not everyone Perhaps, um, yeah. you know, squad swimming six times a week and the chlorine exposure to yeah. that would be more of an issue. Yeah. And I know some of my patients with eczema do suffer when they go back to swimming um, that amount. Yeah, well, yeah, actually, I've had that question on my Facebook page a fair bit. What do you do with kids that are doing swimming lessons and you're trying to heal their gut and you know that the chlorine's no good for them? What can you do to help, you know, prevent them absorbing so much of it and i did see something about people 
rubbing coconut oil on their skin before they went swimming and stuff, but I don't know if that helps. Coconut oil or vitamin E as a barrier okay. um, helps. But also taking vitamin E orally before okay. swimming is also very helpful. That's good because um, different organs have different fire extinguishers mm-hmm. when inflammation reactions occur. And vitamin E seems to be the favorite fire extinguisher for the skin. Mm-hmm. Like in really severe psoriasis, we'll, we might use uh, quite large doses of vitamin E just for a short time, like 6,000 IU per day, okay. because it does help to reduce the intensity of it. It's like the natural steroid for the skin. Mm-hmm. Is, um, it, uh, is it safe for children in, uh, just as a cream, like a barrier cream? Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's quite oh. some, there's some good creams out there, vitamin E. Otherwise... A pharmacy can just simply make you a, a pure E and maybe mix it with a, a base that might be suitable. Yeah. Depending on the Because I know they mix it with like sorbeline and like petrochemicals. Yeah, we well, don't want to use yeah. – if you're going to avoid the petrochemicals, yeah. like sorbeline, that's a good idea. But there are other ones like macadamia and a few other bases that are available that okay. the chemists have. Compounding chemists. Yeah, so coming back to you, yeah, I think you were, you're – your destiny was set up very early in life um, and with what you've done with the diet has allowed the, the, I suppose, the healing of the gut to some extent but you still always react to gluten because that is something in the, in the memory of the immune system that goes on forever just like being vaccinated against something. Okay. So while you have leaky gut and, and everybody does, um, remember that even after healing the gut, gluten will still cause leaky gut for up to eight hours. So yeah. that your open book, your open target. Yeah. No, I, I I don't really care about it. Like I've lost twenty eight kilos since I've gone on the diet, and my life has become so significantly so much better. Mm-hmm. And I like, and I've got no reason to go back to it. But I'm just really interested from um, you know just to look at my history and understand what happened and where where all this sort of how it came about. And um, you know, if, yeah. If so you did your gene studies, you'd probably find that you didn't have the gene for celiac. Right. But clearly, the gluten was 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 pro-inflammatory in your situation, mm. um, just from the from an observational point of view. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so um, this is yeah, this is something that people a lot of people ask because there's been studies that came out about uh, non-celiac gluten sensitivities, and uh, I think last year or the year before, yeah. you know, every couple of months a study comes out and says, you know, no such a thing is real, and then another one says, no, no such thing is real. It's not like you're either celiac or you're fine with gluten, and uh, yeah. so so obviously, uh, Doctor T, we're saying that. Um, it is real and that you don't have to be a celiac to actually get inflammatory responses from eating wheat, for instance. Is that- uh, and you can prove that by doing the IgG right. test for gluten. There's other things about it as well. And a few years ago I went to – I was giving a, a lecture at a symposium and one of the, the doctors there um, was an American laboratory. He, he ran a laboratory in America and – he was talking about all the tests that are available for his laboratory. Now, when we do tests for, for gluten and gliadin, there's two of them. You know, there's anti-endomycin antibodies and anti-gliadin antibodies. And his lab does 14 tests. And what he was trying to explain to us was that if those two tests are normal, don't necessarily think that the person's safe to eat gluten because you haven't really looked thoroughly enough 
That's right. Mm. Uh, it's very, and also we don't have, you know, people talk about cross reactivity between gluten and dairy, that if you react to gluten, you'll probably react to dairy. Mm. We don't have anti-casein antibodies available here in Australia, but they do in the US. And you do get both issues. Once one starts, you tend to find it in the other ones. And I think it's just because dairy often saunters along with meals of gluten and so as the leaky gut begins, the casein fragments start to wander through as well because yeah. they haven't digested either. Yeah. So mm. they just follow the, the gluten fragments and that's mm. why there seems to be a combination of the two. Okay. And that's the thing. Gluten opens you up to the problem, but it only happens if you haven't digested your food by that stage. You've completely converted all your proteins to amino acids by the time you get to that. You shouldn't have a reaction because those can, those um, compounds are considered to be inert. That really makes sense because I know when I used to make my own spelt bread and you have hot bread out of the oven and I'd slather it with butter and I'd do that for like three days in a row and then I'd end up with this terrible reaction. And I always thought it's the butter, it's the dairy, I can't handle it. But now that I've done this GAPS diet and worked through healing the gut and I'm not having any gluten, I'm fine with butter, I'm fine with yogurt, I'm fine with cream i had cream today you know it doesn't bother me now but i'm not having the gluten perhaps you're more mindful of the amounts of those things too you know i am but i but for for like a whole year i couldn't have even ghee yeah and now i've got to the stage where i can have yeah i don't push it though i definitely take care with ghee pardon you can have ghee with glee. Yes, I can. <laughs> <laughs> and I do actually. I do have a lot of ghee now. <laughs> That's good. Um, so then the next thing is the toxic metals. That you know we're saying that has been an increase generally in toxic metals across the board. In certainly in the patients mm. I've seen over the years, and these toxic metals are also notorious for um, overstimulating the immune system. I had this have this amazing book called Immunotoxicology of, of Toxic Metals. And in the sections of it, it's quite interesting the way it's been written because obviously it's written mostly for like lab attendants and things like that. Yeah, I was about to say it doesn't sound, <laughs> it doesn't sound yeah, fascinating easy. to me. But basically they said that if you want to create an anaphylactic animal, you inject them with nickel or mercury and you've got within a day you've got an animal that will overreact to any trigger you wow. eat. Wow. Okay, that's scary, isn't it? Yeah, nice. and so when but you look at nickel, you know, if a nickel is the commonest cause of contact dermatitis in Europe, that's hmm. why some people can't wear, you know, jewellery that has nickel in it, even um, some watch, um, the backs of watches, the casings, um, in, you know, um, earrings and things like this. Is it in braces um, for teeth? There'll be some, it depends on the steel. Okay, because I remember my daughter reacting the whole time she had braces. She had swollen gums, and um, they said they thought it was probably the metals in the braces. There is actually a test for that. Mm. It's called a melisa, and you, it, dentists use it when they're, um, I suppose, auditioning prospective materials for dental work, mm-hmm. and you can check for nickel, palladium, gold, silver. I was quite surprised that these metals that we consider to be inert, like gold and silver, are not that inert. Oh. It's a fallacy that they are. Hmm. Um, some people don't react and some people do react to them. But nickel is definitely one that's been used to um, create anaphylactic models in mice and hamsters. Hmm. And mercury is the other one. 
And the third one, which is um, aluminium, and oh, these no. mercury and aluminium, you know, are used in vaccinations as as immunostimulants. They're called adjuvants, and they're there deliberately to enhance the immune reaction hmm. uh, to whatever is in there. So we know that they have that effect. So if you already have significant amounts of nickel in your body or mercury or aluminium, and then you get challenges for a little bit more, mm. you can imagine that some people might have problems dealing with that. Yeah. They're, um, they're, it's because they cause you know, oxidative stress in the cells. So if you're really good at making a fire extinguishers like superoxide, dismutase, and glutathione, and that's genetically determined, then you'll be fine. But if you're not good at making those intracellular fire extinguishers, mm. then that little bit of extra stress might just tick you off and send you, you know, Over the edge. A, on to go. Mm. So the same with these food reactions. If you did have, well, the, the thing that turned up the most, because we do um, tissue mineral analyses, I was surprised how many of the kids who had peanut allergies had significant amounts of nickel in their hair samples. Hmm. And it's... Um, it took me a while to figure it out, but legumes really concentrate nickel. Mm. They really take up nickel. And and different vegetables, I mean, that's what gives them their flavour. Another example is root vegetables seem to concentrate uranium. Mm. And there's plenty of that in our soil. It's about five parts per million globally. So depending on what you're eating, you will get more of these metals. Um, nickel's used as a catalyst in making margarines. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's, it's in our... It's, it's out there. It's, it's, in, it's in our food chain. So if you already have some and then you're challenged with more and we know that nickel is a significant immunostimulant, then perhaps that might explain the intensity of the reactions that we're seeing these mm. days as these metals accrue and that seem to be higher in every generation. Yeah. The triggers might be the same. It might be E102. It might be high salicylates from, you know, citrus and, um, you know, pineapple, whatever. But the reaction is more intense mm. because the, 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 the metals that are in the body already priming it for it to overreact. So this is why you hear about toxic kids that, um, you know, they have to really work on helping them to detox. Can you give any tips for parents who are trying to help their kids detox from these metals? How do you do that? First thing is to get some handle on how much they have. Hmm. There are different ways of doing that. Kids are not as um, compliant with testing like, you know, um, chelation, provocation tests mm -hmm. or blood tests. So generally around Australia people use hair analyses, which are not the, not always the best way of gauging the toxic load in a person because if you are genetically bad at making glutathione or another compound called metallothionine, you will not see much toxic metals on somebody's hair analysis because they can't actually get rid of it. It's okay. stuck. So it may look like, oh, that looks fine. They don't have these toxic metals. Mm -hmm. But if you look at them clinically and say, look, I really do think this person does have these metals, let's work on a system and it's improve their detoxification pathways, mm -hmm. what, however you do that, then you'll see in subsequent hair analyses those levels go up. They appear to rise. Oh, I see. And the reason is that they're getting rid of them. 
mm-hmm. and that is one of the exit points. The same if you measured 24-hour urinary collection or fecal collections. And again, it's because children will, will – it's very hard to get a child to collect their urine for 24 hours <laughs> or their feces, you know. <clears throat> so the hair analysis is useful in that sense, and we know that some people – we will see more toxic metals coming out in their hair samples subsequently. And eventually when they run out of them, there's no reservoir. They drop. Okay. So um, so if you get a handle on what their load is, that's a good starting point. Because so then you've got to know when to stop. I mean, you know, everyone who does a detox has to know when to stop. Mm. And then there's quite a few things around, depending on the age of the child, their compliance, um, you know, there are ways of, of, of helping that. Most of the practitioners around Australia know those those tips. Mm-hmm. But the most important thing is to get their gut right before you yeah. do this. Because okay. if they have leaky gut, if you put a metal as small as mercury into the gut, it'll come straight back. Mm. And we know that that if the gut, if you don't repair that exit point, then you just recycle toxic metals mm. round and around. So you want the exit to be one way, like a turnstile coming out of a swimming pool or, you know, um, a museum or something. Once you're out, you're out. You can't get back in. Yeah. So the gut in that sense is really important and certain bacteria are more helpful when it comes to removing toxic metals. Mm-hmm. Certain um, bacteria are not so helpful because they're creating chronic um, dysbiosis and um, in, increased intestinal permeability. See, the medical term for that is intestinal permeability. They mm-hmm. just don't like that term, leaky gut. It just sounds too new agey. <laughs> okay, intestinal You can't actually measure it scientifically. You can measure yeah. the pore size scientifically, and there's a normal range for um, intestinal permeability size. Mm. So you could do a, a starting point to see how... Is, is that a biopsy? No, it's, it's um, a urine test. Oh, it's a urine test. They give you a range of compounds that have different sizes in orally, and then they check in the urine. So if mm. the small one gets through, you've got a little bit of leaky gut. If the large one gets through, you've got big leaky yeah. gut. Yeah, it's a pretty harmless sort of test. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you can you can scale or determine the extent of of that. You can do um, comprehensive stool digestive analyses where you look at a whole range of things from is the person have the person got um, fragments of you know vegetables and meat in their feces? Mm. Are they digesting carbohydrate, protein, or fat? Uh, do they have signs of inflammation in their intestine? Looking at different inflammatory markers, you can identify whether the the bacteria, the aerobes and anaerobes, are in balance with each other. Is there an overgrowth of one particular type? Is there an undergrowth of an important type? Um, is there a, a particular bugger that shouldn't be there? Um, do, they, do they have yeast? Do they have Helicobacter um, and parasites? So, you know, there are companies that do these comprehensive stool digestive analyses. That gives you an idea of what you're dealing with. Um, and also perhaps the time frame of what it's going to take to improve it. Mm. So, yeah, the getting the, the gut right is really important in the detoxification side of things because if you get that right it means that that they will detox themselves yeah and they'll do it forever well okay. until they become teenagers and eat badly <laughs> <laughs> hey my teenagers are eating well <laughs> yeah i know you're special <laughs>
That's because you homeschool them. You don't let them uh, out of the house. You're always hey, they're out of the out house right now. Panting, <laughs> the dreaded school panting. We don't get started on that one. Yeah, true. <laughs> I don't have to deal with that. But you can see there's a really broad this, – this is a huge area, mm. these food reactions, and some of them are like being in the wrong place at the wrong time, yeah. um, misadventure, um, uh, something that's predisposed you, then then you've got the the genetic aspect of it. Mm. Um, then you've got, you know, the what's what created the gut ill health as on top of it, because generally those people with gut ill health have worse reactions than people who with, with good gut health. Mm. Um, then the particular reactions could be that the there's a the fail safe that protects you from the normally is not working, like the level of stomach acid. It's not being denaturing those things of pesticides, herbicides, flavors, colorings, enhancers, preservatives, that kind of thing. Mm. Then you've got the individual reactions. Once you set off um, the alarm, they'll be from you know mild to severe, depending on whether that person's immune system tends to overdo things anyway genetically, which then will be amplified or suppressed by the presence of toxic metals and their gut health. So it isn't a simple, there is no silver bullet here. Um, Dr. T, with uh, expectant mothers uh, or women who are trying to have children, it sounds like it's a, a very important thing that they have things in check before mm. the baby is conceived or, of course, given birth to. And. Oh, yeah. um, you're talking about preconception nutrition. Yeah, and uh, I think it's a big deal, especially for women who do have food allergies themselves. And a, a lot of the, the followers that we have have their own food allergies and they also have growing families and they, they're having more children and they're all interested in how do they uh, minimize the risk for having a child with uh, same or even more severe food allergies than the ones that the mothers have. Yeah, that's... They really have to sort out the reason why they have that problem. Mm. You know, all those um, all those contributors that we've been talking about the the, the genetic side of it, the, what what's the immunological mediation of it, um, what is the gut health like? Uh, you know, whether they have toxic metals in their body, and you know those things. And you know, there are, the practitioners around. You know, the, the I have to say the naturopaths are better at this than the doctors because right. they don't have to unlearn things. You know, I had to unlearn a lot of my um, what's the word um, ideas, um, assumptions to really get a handle of this because it's often reported in places where doctors don't look, mm. and maybe in places that they wouldn't believe mm. as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so you need someone like a holistic naturopathic. Um, the people, you know, sometimes the best way to find these people is to do it in reverse. So you might ring up a laboratory like Nutropath, for instance, and say, hey, I'm in, you know, Sydney, and do you have any practitioners you can recommend that do this type of testing? Because we've got... Oh, that's a good idea. Or... You know, if it's um, gene testing like fit genes, you ring them up and say, hey, I'm in Melanda and, um, you know, is there anyone who you've got a 
practitioner up here that does this. Mm. That's and, genius. You know, <laughs> Why haven't yeah. I ever thought of that? Yeah. <laughs> so simple. Yeah. Because you're not devious like I am. Ah. <laughs> I'm learning. <laughs> yeah, we'll do, do it in reverse. You know, For yeah. some yeah. reason, I, I think they'll be like, because how you know tightly uh, policed Australia is, they'll say, sorry, this is highly confidential information and uh, we won't be letting, you know. No, they're not. They're the, not no, they're not ratting on anybody because oh, right. they're not breaking a privacy act. Right, okay. Great. You're just simply saying it's like saying, Oh, I bought I've got recommendation a really BMW and I live in the country, which which you know, yeah. which um mechanics do those cars, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's a recommendation. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, they're happy to do that because okay. I mean at the end of the day they get more business, but That's it. they're also um they do the labs do actually like to help people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's what I I say to them. Look, if I can't find somebody, then get the lab laboratories to recommend a practitioner. Okay. They're quite, they're, generally, they're happy to. Yeah. Hmm. We've we've ch- talked for an hour, and do we still have lots of points on your list? <laughs> no, I've sort of covered quite a lot there. I just you have highlight a few things, um, you know, about yeah food and sometimes it's it's not as simple as you know it's gmo or not gmo yeah um you know there are more things than what about gmo what what are your thoughts on that now that you've brought it up <laughs> yeah it's a really hard thing it's a, it's it's hard because there's all sorts of you know i mean i'll give you an example that you know how um, best source of, of uh, omega three is fish oil. Mm. Well, there's actually a, a plan to genetically modify the flaxseed plant so it made more omega three. Yeah. Um, there was um, oh the puffer fish, the fugu. They're actually genetically creating clones of that fish that don't make the toxin. Hmm. So you know there could be some good things about this and some bad things about this. I guess we don't know the long-term effects. There's so mm, many. The it's problem. like even just the farming chemicals in Australia. There are 1,800 approved chemicals for use in Australia for farming. Oh. And you can use those. You don't have to actually supply safety data for them. If you want mm. to delete one, you've got to have, you know, a bus full of lawyers and, and millions of dollars yeah. um, and lots of court time to take one off the off the mm. listing, but it's quite easy to... to so we're talking about uh, innocent until proven guilty kind of thing. Yeah, it is kind of a bit like that. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, sometimes cause and effect is really hard to find. A good example is DDT. It took about 30 years to realize that DDT was a carcinogen. Yeah. You know, by that time, it's harder to track it down because people have moved. They might not remember that time they were sitting in the park and the council came through and fogged them or that time they were helping their uncle spray, you know, dildren down the the, the back fence with the pump thing and they got all their back and and legs all wet from that time. You know, there's there's episodes where um, people have exposure to these things and they might have been short-lived or transient and it's very hard to to cause an effect Mm, with chemicals. And I think it's going to be the same with, with GMO. Mm. What what worries me a little bit is that to create plants that are more resistant to pesticides and herbicides seems like a retrograde step 
um, mm. maybe we shouldn't be thinking yeah. about monoculture. We're, we're, so, we're yeah, solving the wrong problem here. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and then you, you can go, that translates to, you know, um, beef farming in the U.S., where they're giving them a, a diet which is completely unnatural to them, corn for ruminant. Yeah. Mm. And the commonest cause of death there is acidosis because yeah. it's too, you know, they can't handle it. Hmm. Um, and they should be grass farmers, not beef, beef farmers. And if you mm. um, grass, you let grass grow, you have all sorts of other things in it. You don't try to to monopolize the the biodiversity of it, biodiversity of it into one thing. Then you don't have to use pesticides because you're not worrying. The diversity of it takes care of itself. Yeah. But so Dr. All these- T, that means that people have to do some work rather than machines now. You know, like this is this is the problem. Hmm. Like if you look at someone like Polyface Farms, or, you know, where they have the most highly productive farm on the planet, and it's done through this kind of rotation system, hmm. it's yeah. super hard work. It's really like the, people need to be really dedicated. And they want to actually, you know, go and uh, every day wake up before dawn and get all this work done. Whereas these days, they've separated it neatly. You get the corn farmer, and he use, he's using all the chemicals on the on the land, and get subsidies from the government, and they grow the GMO corn, and then they ship it off to these cows that are in feedlots. They they don't even have to work hard. The machines can do most of the work for them. And I think, you know, people are just lazy these days, and they yeah. just want to maximize profit. Well, that's it, profit. Uh, <laughs> that, that corn subsidy underpins just such a huge um, part of the GNP of the US. Mm. You know, that one decision to do that creates an industry that supports other industries that wouldn't be viable. Mm. It's a really difficult thing. I think the best way to counteract that is for other farmers to make a stand and start producing it through these rotatory mm. um, systems where you've got cows and chickens, I think, isn't it, those two? And then you, yeah, you've got and pigs. And yeah. Pigs, yeah. <laughs> There must be a way to automate that. I mean, if you can automate irrigation and that, you could you could automate some of those things as well. Yeah, sure, surely you can you can make things better. Like there's no doubt we're you know highly creative beings, yeah. and surely we can. Like if we took all that money that we put into all the rubbish that we put it into, then we should mm. be able to make this, these uh, sustainable farming practices better. I mean, like, with the GMO thing, like a lot of people go, oh, you know, it's just like what nature does. And, you know, I just I wanted to get your thoughts on that because from the way I see it, it's like what you produce with genetic modification isn't something that could ever have been produced by nature. Like I understand hybridization and selection, like when we select certain, uh, you know, breeds that are doing better and we continue to select until th- those genetics are fit for purpose. Uh, but things that where we get two different species and we get genes out of one and put it in the other, I mean that to me sounds highly dangerous, like yeah. and and kind of like un uh, untestable in a short period of time. Like we sh- we wouldn't be able to really make sense of how it would react in our bodies. Do you think that that kind of stuff is uh, could be safe? It depends on what they're doing and what what are, what's being done. I don't think that's what nature does. No. Nature nature deletes things that don't survive. I suppose they don't have a survival Emerge, advantage yeah. um, given natural things. So if we if we're testing something like a plant that takes more pesticides, that is not what nature would do. No, you can't use that argument. No. Um, there was another point that you were mentioning. Um, uh, I, I remember when you were saying it. 
just now or yeah just now is your I'm talking about, uh, talking about um, maybe just hybridization or selection of the breeds that are fit for purpose that's the, these are and then you know as opposed yeah. to yeah getting two different the meddling yeah. with it, I suppose, trying to create something that um, that man wants but nature doesn't mm. And I think when we've done that, it hasn't always turned out so well. I'll give you a really good example. There was an experiment. You know how we, people complain we don't have enough rain? Yeah. There's an experiment in Britain done, I think, in the 50s, where they used silver iodide and they seeded the clouds to get more rain and they caused such a flood they killed 52 people. Oh, wow. So when we meddle with things like mm. this, the outcome isn't always well, happy. We, we don't know what the outcome will be. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Um, but the, then the, well, probably the worst thing is that, you know, when you've got drift, you know, the organic farmers um, are well aware of this, that if your neighbour mm. is using chemicals and you've got yeah. drift, you, that, that's wiped you out for three years, your production. Yeah. Mm. Um, and the same with GMO, that if, you, if your um, produce is non-GMO and you've got drift from another um, farm, you know, w- what do we do about that? Oh well, you you know you get sued because yeah, I was about you have, to say that you get sued. You know have the right to uh, <laughs> grow these genetics that are proprietary. That you know, yeah. mm-hmm. ridiculous. Perhaps what we should be doing is making sure that the labelling is consistent, so we know yeah. which foods have this. The same as we do with all the other nutritional information, mm. um, even like trans fatty acids that's undergoing review here in Australia. Um, in other countries, you know, they make a big thing of it. Like in Scandinavia, the maximum trans fatty acids you can have in a food is 1%. Hmm. Um, so that's labelled so that people are aware and go, right, well, I choose not to eat that food that has trans fatty acids of higher amounts or salt or, or you know, carbs, these kind of things. Hmm. So maybe that's the best, um, best way to lobby is so that – and then – the consumer will decide. Yeah. I I have a fear for the consumer. Like I've I work in the corporate world and I see what people knowingly put into their systems That's and true. um I just feel like there needs to be some kind of sane intervention at a policy level where we we you know do well, something. One thing I hear is well the government would wouldn't allow it if it wasn't okay. You know, so that's yeah. people will just eat anything because the government allows it, so it must be okay. They're there to protect us. Yeah, that's yeah. right. They're uh, guardian angel. <laughs> yeah. so I think some people are very naive about. Yeah, I think so. Protections we have, if you really look deeply at the sort of things we should be protected from, mm. like mercury and fish. Yes. Um, Mercury amalgam fillings, you know, all of these mm. things. Somebody is a regulator for them, um, but many of them are privatised. Yeah. Uh, so which means that they're not that accountable. No. no. Um, Doctor T, uh, so your book has a lot of this information in it about what you spoke about with food allergies and testing and all that. No, the the inflammation book doesn't really have okay. much about that. Really, just the genetics of genetics. Of the, of the inf- inflammation, uh, the gut health and how inflammation, what the toxic metals do to the immune system. But that would be the first step for, for people anyway in their path to recovery is to look at um, 
Yeah, find out what, what how bad the problem is, and there are ways to quantify that so you're not guessing yeah. um, either way. You're, you're not um, underestimating it and you're not um, overdoing it either. If you... If you if if you can be objective about the problem, yeah, fantastic. So you 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 do have in your book. I'll just mention this again for anyone who didn't um, hear the last podcast um, that you do have in the book how to go about getting testing, don't you? Yeah, it's a yeah. kind of a um, self help page of what mm. questions to ask, who to go asking mm. them, what what tests would you need to to know. Um, your liabilities and assets in health, in, in your health, things that you don't necessarily get routinely. Mm. Like so many patients are informed when they have blood tests and they're all normal that everything's fine. Um, it depends what tests you do. And you don't always get the information in the blood. Sometimes you have to look in strange places like in the hair or in the, the feces or in the, the DNA of a person to get the – and very few – Doctors aren't used to Doing investigating. It, yeah. They tend to under-investigate, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, because Maybe because of time. Yeah. And and maybe fear of um, persecution by, you know, Medicare and pe- people like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the health, health self-help page, a lot of that information can be done um, without a doctor. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there are some tests that you need to do, but quite a lot of naturopaths are able to, to write tests like the ESR and CRP and things like that using local labs. The patient will have to pay for them. But I'll tell you what, from July 1, they would anyway. Okay. Because they won't, I've, that I've heard that there's no, not going to be bulk billing for blood tests. Okay. So that's going to open the whole thing up. And I think there probably will be a drift away from medical practitioners who who don't investigate mm. after the patients ask them specifically. So go get your test now before yeah, July. Right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they don't cost a lot of money, these tests like the anti-nuclear antibody. They're not thousands of dollars like you pay in America. They're, they're a few hundred dollars. Okay. Two or three hundred. It's not that sort of cost even if you buy if you get them done privately. But the gene just, tests yeah, are like four fifty, yeah. and the poo samples are three eighty, four hundred, those sorts of amounts. But the thing with gene tests, you only have to do them the once because they stay the same your whole yeah. life. That's true. Like that'd be a good anecdote, isn't it, Doctor? Can I do my gene testing again after the therapy? I want to know if they're any better now. <laughs> That's a Doctor T joke. That is a Doctor T joke. <laughs> Uh, well, we better stop because we we, don't, we better not go too much longer. But um, so many interesting things there. Thank you so much. We've probably created a whole. Another yeah, ten- that's what I was going to say. Now we've got <laughs> heat more questions. You know, yeah, this is like an it's, endless. See how cycle. complicated it is, and how oh, wide it is. So complicated. Mm. Um, your do you have any other books you'd recommend that would help people? I know you've got a few books. Shall I just send them to your website? That might be easiest. They can have a look at what books you've got. Yeah. What's um, your website called again? Nutrition Review Service. Nutrition Review Service. Okay. And I'll put the link in the article on the Wellness Couch page. There'll be a link. In terms of books on allergies specifically, Mm -hmm. 
I'll have to have a think about that. The book that I sent you, the picture of, I find that's actually very interesting from the whole, from the overview of reactions. Why does my, why does asparagus make your wee smell? (laughs) I I just thought that was such a, a good book, not looking at allergies or anything specific, but perhaps the fact that, that we, that food and humans can have a, um, you know, a happy union or an adversarial one. Yeah. Um, I'll have a look. I mean... Well, if you think of something that we know, I can put the link in the article. Yeah, okay, I'll I'll, I'll think of some. Okay, thank you. Julie Udi's Additive Alert is actually a really good starter as well. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for your time. It's very Thank you, Dr. T. And um, if anyone does save the world, what was that? We saved the world tonight. Yes, we did save the world. (laughs) One one podcast at a time. One podcast. Hey, we should have that for our our little you know slogan: saving the world, one podcast at a time. (laughs) Yeah, I like that. That, Maybe that one can be yours when you start yours, Igor. You have to. It, it's we've, fascinating. We've gotten you into uh, podcasting now. You have I mean, to start your yeah, own. we we're happy to have you as as often as you want. But uh, I think you you have a lot more to offer. Even like you know, you could probably turn out one, you know, Not a every few day. weeks. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, it's a subject, and I think. What I realised was that my training did not permit, pr- prepare me for this at all. <laughs> oh, not well. even the podcasting or the or the this issue. <laughs> no, just just solving problems in general. Uh, I think <laughs> one of the hallmarks of a good practitioner is that they use all the skills that they have. They don't waste any information that they've learned. But, you know, in terms of what you learned in medical school, I think that that becomes smaller and smaller as a percentage of the skills as you, as you, um, you know, work in your field. I don't know if other doctors would agree with that, but, but what I've, read and understood since that time, I think has made me a better practitioner. Mm. It sounds like it to us, Dr. Yeah. T, like you're, the, the work that you're breaking down to everyone and sharing so freely is, um, you know, absolutely amazing. And yeah. uh, so few, we've met so few doctors from the mainstream who are doing what you're doing and helping people the way that you are helping. So the more we have people like you, the luckier this country gets. Um, and we're really thankful to have you on our podcast. Yeah, we are. Thank you. Well, I always try to keep the science in it mm. so that it's it's validatable. Valid, there's a word called validatable. Sounds good. Uh, and defendable. You yes. know, where is the science in this? What, yeah. what can we draw from it how can that, that um, support what we're doing and I, uh, that's really from my point of view that's really important I consider myself a scientist who treats people mm-hmm. that's good well thank you so much and thanks everyone for listening we hope you enjoyed it and you're finding it helpful and you can post questions and comments on our Facebook pages there's the quirky cooking chat group and the quirky cooking page there's Fuad's page the food blog and I don't know where people can reach you, Igor. Can they reach you on your website? Yeah, yeah, they can. They can send emails there. There's but um, probably um, you're flat out with <laughs> with your practice, so we don't have a lot of time for answering questions. Um, but maybe if they send us some questions, we can ask I you for the next because podcast. It's probably better to put them on the forum. So you, yeah. if you have ten people asking the same question, that's it. Yeah. 
Yeah. We'll, we'll definitely collect a few. We'll definitely have a question and answer session with you. I'm sure we, we've got a few topics we'd like to cover first before we get into Q and A because, yeah, uh, because there, there are many things. That, yeah, a lot of yeah, yeah. In, uh-huh. more in depth. Um, Joe, before we go, mm-hmm. uh, would you want to tell us a little bit about the upcoming GAPS program that you're doing yes. and just uh, yes. tell our listeners? Okay, so yeah. a lot of people have asked how I'm going with the with the gut health program. Um, Still getting there, finishing off the ebooks. Won't be long, another couple of weeks, maybe a month at the most. I'm hoping it will be less than that though. Um, so stay tuned. It's basically to help people with learning to cook good, healthy meals to improve gut health. Um, so there's videos, cooking videos, six ebooks with recipes and meal plans for six weeks. So there'll be lots of help there for those of you who just need that practical, down-to-earth, everyday help with changing your diet. So coming soon. Just stay um, stay connected on Facebook and my newsletter and you'll find out any news on that. And for those of you who don't know, Joe and I are in the process of, her, of writing our uh, Paleo cookbook together, which yeah. is... Uh, called Quirky Paleo, and hopefully we're getting that out in November, and stay tuned for that. Um, Hopefully, very soon we'll start sharing things like the cover design and uh, talking about what's happening. From my side, I'm uh, I'm actually dedicating myself to the book uh, in about a week from now. Well, actually, by the time this podcast comes out, I would already be uh, a caveman in practice. So basically (laughs) what I'm doing is I'm I'm leaving the corporate world and uh, just going to be focusing on the cookbook and um, I'm, I'll be living a uh, much more Paleolithic lifestyle. So I'll, I'll have a lot of time in nature. And uh, my aim for the year is to write a book and also overcome a childhood fear of climbing trees. So I'll be doing that Woo! this year. So <laughs> <laughs> stay, stay tuned and we'll let you know how that's going. Good fun. Awesome. Okay, we'll come back in two weeks and we'll chat again. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye, Thank Joe. you so much. Bye, This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their business, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.